Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we have Mr. Kapil Nair, who is an NBCC, a National Board Certified Counselor. He is one of the leading voices in the substance use dependency movement to empower patients and a fierce patient advocate for all things related to chronic pain and substance use dependency. Uh, with that, I would like the audience to welcome Mr. Kapil Nair. Hey, yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you for being here. So before we begin, uh, can you help us understand what is a nationally board certified counselor and what positions you uniquely in the opiate epidemic? Yeah, absolutely. So um, typically folks that complete their master's degree in counseling psychology or um, a, a number of different arenas. So it could be social work, but for the most part, it's a, a certified counseling um, or psychological counseling. Uh, they then have to complete a specific amount of hours to be able to get their uh, state licensure. Uh, thereafter, they're able to apply for national recognition as a, as a certified counselor. Uh, and so that's what that acronym is all about. And so once one has those specific accrediting accreditations, uh, they're able to then advertise and then, um, you know, fully function as an independent private practitioner. Um, they can also work in conjunction with university settings um, or outpatient settings or even inpatient. And so the list goes on and on. Sure. So tell us, is this um, a relatively unique position? And given what's transpiring in the opiate epidemic and our changing perspective of mental health, would you consider this a growing field, the NBCC? Yeah, the NBCC is um, just an, an additional certification. Uh, it sort of just puts you on a specific tier um, and sort of homogenizes everyone that has the certification uh, to be on the same tier, if you will. Um, and so it's not necessarily um, a subspecialty or any of that sort. It's just uh, an additional certification. Sure. So what is the role of a counselor in the opiate epidemic? Talk through the audience as to what positions you uniquely to work with physicians, with patients and their families. What is the role of the counselor? I mean, I often, when teaching, um, I often talk about counseling as being sort of a, a microcosm of the world, if you will. Um, so what happens in the counseling dynamic should typically ripple out into the nuclear home and hopefully greater into society. Uh, so I often look at counseling as sort of the glue that societies uh, because counselors typically end up working in conjunction with physicians um, they help monitor medication and see if there's anything that's going on that comes up that may be alarming uh, so that the psychiatrist or the um, attending physician would be able to mend specific medications for to be able to alleviate that for the client um, but then further um, we sort of delve a little bit deeper with regards to emotional um, things that are occurring, um, you know, societal pressures, stigma, uh, social stressors here and now COVID-19 has been, been a major stressor for a lot of individuals and depressant as well. Um, so we're really grappling and gripping down and offering skills, foundational approaches, um, you know, strategies to basically be able to alleviate all of those specific concerns. Um, and, you know, as it relates to substance use disorders, we've never seen an epidemic such that we are seeing currently uh, the exponential increase of people that are using substances has been off the charts at this point um, here and now with COVID. So we are really 
working as a frontliner uh, to sort of help alleviate and implement um, specific techniques to be able to, you know, reduce um, or even replace substance use behaviors, including harm reduction. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your perspectives on harm reduction, because that seems to be an area of focus for you. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So I come from a school of thought where, um, you know, harm reduction is basically looking at and alleviating the risks that are involved in use. Um, and so that is something that I am very much adamant about. Um, I have worked in traditional inpatient facilities in the nonprofit sector I've worked in um, new age, kind of the evolving for-profit sector of substance use disorder treatment, specifically in like the Florida model step-down programming. Um, to me, from my research of, of what I've seen of the industry as it is, that being said, substance use disorder treatment, um, treatment has not since evolved dramatically since 1955. Um, so what we're offering currently is not necessarily the best option it's an it's an option uh, and typically it's an option that's offered as opposed to incarceration hospitalization um, and so it seems to me that you know substance use disorder treatment seems to be a catch-all or an umbrella uh, as a last resort and um, all these new age new programmings that are opening up across the country uh, feel like seem like um, a la carte medley options um, so it's not really anything innovative it's just adding to. Um, and so that to me is very curious. And I feel like the public needs to be mindful of that. For me, harm reductionists, um, specifically in the private practice sector, seem to be the most altruistic format. Um, and I feel like is the most genuine new wave when it comes to substance use disorder treatment. Um, as you know, a, a host of people before me have said, uh, it, it, we need to really look at the system as it is, uh, because currently what's being offered as far as insurance approved, um, services, as far as nonprofit and for-profit substance use disorder treatment is not necessarily the best option, um, as efficacy studies aren't being done and folks are just claiming that they're very efficacious. So it seems like it's profiteering as opposed to actually being something long-term. Talk to us a little bit about that, the profiteering component versus altruistic medicine and where the incongruity between policy and actual practice comes in, because I think that's an important point to expand on. Uh, this is a great point. Um, great question. Uh, so this is extremely multifaceted. So I have been privy to some information with regards to um, kind of the insidious nature of policy, um, lobbyists, uh, congressional folks as well as folks willing to try and profiteer from folks that need help. Uh, so sort of making money on the backs of those that are sick and suffering. Um, and so what I've seen is sort of this puppeteering that occurs. Um, so an individual that's extremely esteemed that I would deem to be super elite, uh, going to an Ivy League school and finishing in international equivalency of Ivy League school, uh, coming in and sort of setting up via two degrees of separation for, um, you know, folks that are interested in becoming invested in treatment solely for the of monetary gain. It's not for efficacious care. Um, and so what I've seen is, uh, you know, specific for-profit facilities are able to accrue $43 million in a year 
yet have high amounts of recidivism. And if a you know two-year study was done to evaluate 30 days clean, the results were pretty much between eight and 13% were able to attain sobriety for 30 days after completion of that program. Um, and so what I've seen is this monetization occurring and it's not a one-off case. Um, I initially thought it was a one-off case, uh, but in doing research, what I found is this is a, a common practice almost and it's metastasizing across the country. Um, and so, you know, media has done a fantastic job sort of exposing it in Florida, uh, Boca Raton specifically. Um, they've done a fantastic job uh, displaying it in Southern California. But what we're seeing now is this carcinogenesis that's going from states like New Jersey and Pennsylvania over to Ohio, down to Arizona, into Texas. Um, and so we really need to look at this properly um, because this new wave of kind of higher echelon care is, is it, it could very well just be a sham. Well, what if somebody were to come to you and say, these models are better than abusing opioids or obtaining illicit opioids off the street, that these models are in and of itself a form of harm reduction? How would you counter that? Yeah, I mean, that that's a valid point to bring up. But I would also argue, then why not just go to a private practitioner and practice harm reduction? Um, it would cost less. It would be less of an overhead from the insurance sector. Um, simultaneously, it would be at less jeopardy to the client. Um, if we put someone in treatment for 30 days and say, okay, this is practicing harm reduction, anticipating that they're going to go out and use day 31, that actually puts someone at higher risk of, of having an overdose or some sort of cardiogenic issue. Um, because they've been off of that substance, assumingly for 30 days straight. Um, so that would be my response. It's a great question though. Um, but I would also argue like, why are, we, why are we accepting that the system is the way it is, that this is, it's either an option of going to a place for 30 days or nothing. Um, so so that, that's kind of where I'm, I'm coming from. I, I understand where you're coming from and I, sympathize with you because there's a broader issue of implicit moral hazards in healthcare, whether it's, um, you know, the readmission rates for congestive heart failure for mm -hmm. patients who are discharged with CHF, but magically appear with a condition that looks like CHF, but really isn't CHF because of diagnostic magic. Uh, you, you see these implicit moral hazards all the time, mm -hmm. but it appears much more prevalent in the substance use dependency space. Uh, would you agree with that sentiment first? And two, why do you think it is that if you agree? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, I think there's so much money to be made, honestly. And that's like the, I know that's the most callous thing to say out loud, but I think from everything I've seen in the for-profit sector specifically that works with commercial insurance specifically, I have seen a whole medley of different things that have occurred that are just gravely immoral and unethical. Um, and I think it's simply because of the fact there's no other better solution. And so these people that own these specific types of facilities know they can sort of get away with it um, because there's nothing else that they would be able to refer these individuals to. Uh, which in and of itself is the most unethical and immoral thing I could possibly say about the industry. Um, 
and and I think it exists solely for that reason because you know there's much money to be made from it and there's no and it, it almost begs the question you know with looking at everything that happened with the Sacklers and their chapter 11 filing of bankruptcy and, and everything that's happening with regards to the monetary amount that they're supposed to put back into the system sort of to be able to remedy something that they had their hand in, um, that being the epidemic, it almost makes you question if all of that money is going to go to a specific for-profit sector side. Um, and further, yeah. would this then be the second wave of their like international monopoly that they're going to be acquiring from literally something they started? So uh, clearly inherent in what you're saying is this chicken and egg scenario where there is this business model in substance use dependency. There are the policies and legislative statutes and guidelines that many of these physicians leading these institutions uh, promote. But at the end of the day, it's also the enablement of these individuals to Mm -hmm. proceed with these policies. So do you look at it like a chicken and egg scenario or do you feel like there's clearly one point of emphasis by which we can resolve this? Uh, that's a beautiful question. I honestly see it as a trickle down. Um, and so from my vantage point, I mean, I've only worked frontline and so there's only one place to look and that's up. And if you follow the money in some of these facilities, you will find that that leads to a congressional level. And if you continue following it, you'll start seeing that lobbyists is sometimes involved with pushing a specific agenda. And then big pharma steps in at some point and pushes it, the envelope a little bit further. And so the, the, from my vantage point, it seems like it's a trickle down and it's almost mirroring the exact same blueprint that the Sacklers used with regards to getting their agenda started with the opioid epidemic. Um, I you know, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think no, I, I, this is an important point. Um, clearly, you're demonstrating the disingenuous behavior of mm. medicine meeting politics. Correct. But giving them the benefit of the doubt, and that's sure. a big benefit of the doubt, uh, <laughs> there is an inherent moralization of medicine, a moralizing and imposing of certain ethics into medicine that perhaps has a altruistic motive, that perhaps has a goodwilled intention. Where do you see things going wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally that's the reason why folks get into medicine. That's fundamentally the reason why we wanna help other people, right, is because of that ethical boundary setting. Um, and I think it goes haywire once specific agendas are set in place. and. I can't pinpoint exactly which comes first. So I guess to your point, yes, it could be chicken or the egg situation where a monetary gain specific physician will overwrite a specific script. That could be one avenue to explore. Um, but when it comes to substance use disorder treatment, it seems like the policies are written in such a way that loopholes are established to allow for proprietors to then ride the loopholes to then come away with this monetary gain. Um, that's what it seems like for now. I'm still researching this. I've been researching this for the past like four or five years. Um, I'm not anywhere close to being done just because it's so multifaceted, um, but that would be my initial hypothesis. 
Sure, sure. And for the audience listening who may not be as familiar with the world of substance use dependency and the politics that go behind it, Mm -hmm. the closest analogy I like to provide is with the issue of abortion, how you see so many disingenuous abortion laws that Mm -hmm. are pretending to address or control abortion to be safe for the mother and for the baby, but essentially they're fundamentally restrictive in nature and simply make a condition harder to obtain. Um, For the audience, can you perhaps maybe delve a little bit more into that analogy and help them understand a little bit about these kind of disingenuous actors, as you had mentioned, with their specific agendas going haywire? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would be able to apply it to that specific analogy. I just know it from the framework of like say there are specific acts. Uh, recently there was the Parity Act, um, the Affordable Care Act, and let's just roll with Obamacare. So what I've seen is that the rollout of these specific acts were genuinely altruistic in that, you know, genuinely the folks that came up with these acts and had them roll out were thinking about those that were spontaneously sick and suffering so that they would be able to opt in to specific benefits to then get the care that they needed, minimizing the overhead costs that they would receive for say going to a specific specialist. So like walking that out, if God forbid, you know, person A had some sort of event happen in their life where they needed to get vital organ surgery. Now with the insurance that they currently have, they would not be able to necessarily get vital organ surgery without paying over like 70 to 80 grand. So what they did with these three specific acts, the Affordable Care Act, Parity Act, and um, Obamacare, was this person would then be able to opt in on the 15th of the month for a specific commercial-based high premium insurance that then they would be able to use for this vital organ surgery. And so by getting this opt-in procedure done, they would then reduce their overhead cost from 70 or 80 grand to maybe five or 10 grand. And so that was the holistic idea of these three specific acts. Financially incentivizing patients to behave in a way that's considered good. Correct. And reduce overhead so that someone wouldn't necessarily have to deal with having a vital organ surgery and then also having to face bankruptcy, right? Sure. So that was the holistic, wholesome vantage of this. Now, what they did not attest for, the loopholes that were established were that if an individual with, you know, younger than 26 years of age, for example, were still under their parents' insurance, their parents' insurance may not cover specific out-of-network, you know, privatized commercial-based services. And so that in lies the issue when it comes to substance use disorder treatment is that folks that were involved with these three specific acts were also privy to the information and almost, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but were privy to the information that the carve out was basically substance use and mental health. So that means that they would then be able to manipulate the system to then legally allow for a specific facility to accrue massive amounts of money within one year, two years time. So expand on that a little bit, because I think you mentioned a great point, but it was bared a little bit in what you're saying. Talk about these carve outs 
with specific disease states like substance use dependency, how they came about, and now what is the actual implementation of those carve-outs? Yeah, so the carve-outs, um, I'm still researching currently. That's where I'm, where, where I'm currently looking at with regards to the insurance. But what I have seen is that, generally speaking, if someone has a basic insurance, they, with that insurance, would not be able to go to an out-of-network facility. That's kind of how insurance works. So you're compelled to a specific network. If you choose or opt, opt to go to an out-of-network facility, then they do what's called a single case agreement oftentimes with the insurance that you currently have. But that means that the overhead or the reimbursement rate that the receiving facility gets may be lower than what they want. And so therefore they may tell the client or the client themselves may opt in to a privatized commercial PPO policy, for example. And so those specific policies typically are in the ballpark of 350 to $400 a month, which is a very high premium. But with that specific commercial PPO policy, they would be able to go to an out of network facility. They would be able to receive the services they wanted the receiving facility would be able to charge a higher reimbursement rate that they would then want. So it seems like both parties' needs are met. But what no one's looking at is that the insurance company would then hemorrhage out this money to the receiving facility. And whatever overhead exists between the receiving facility's initial charging rate for reimbursement and the in-network rate, so walking that out a little bit further, if the out-of-network facility for a detox level of care is charging $4,000 to $5,000, let's just call it $4,000 a day for detox level of care, if that same type of facility in an in-network capacity uh, was seeing that specific client for detox, they would only be allowed to charge $1,000 per day. So that $3,000 difference is then being billed to the specific client that's receiving the service. And so insurance sometimes doesn't have any choice but to pay the reimbursement rate. And so as opposed to losing all of that money, they then charge the difference to the client. And so I've seen time and time again, folks in Florida, folks in California, folks in wherever this is happening would be able to attest that their clients would call in saying, okay, I, I was there for X amount of days and I just got this lump sum mail in the bill, uh, bill in the mail from the insurance company, am I liable for this? And you know, we often don't know what to say. So we say, call the insurance company and see what they say. Insurance says, okay, you're definitely liable for this. So they call us back and we say, okay, we'll call the facility that you went to. The facility then says, don't worry about that bill, tear it up, you don't have to worry about it. And so if the client does choose to tear it up, they tear it up, but then at the end of the fiscal calendar year, that specific facility that the client went to will write this off as charity care um, or services wow. unpaid. So that means that at the end of the fiscal calendar year, they're able to write this off as a tax write-off. And then they win on all angles, basically. They're getting paid by the insurance company. They're getting a tax deduction or however that works. Um, so that's kind of the paradigm that we're existing in right now. And so there me, are many folks that are aware of this, but no one's talking about it, which is very concerning. So let, let's delve into that. But I want to summarize what you stated. Sure. Uh, so 
in order to provide increased access to care for high-risk conditions, for perceived high-risk conditions like substance use dependency, there were specific carve-outs for conditions like substance use dependency to enable patients to go to both in-network and out-of-network facilities. And in America, because we have an inverse relationship between access to care and cost of care, if we're going to increase access, we're going to have to increase cost accordingly. And so what happens is a lot of these patients who go to these easy access, highly marketed out of network facilities get charged higher than market approved rates because they're out of network and can either charge the patients and insurance more and making more revenue or use it as a tax loss to then help either on a write-off, as you had mentioned, for charity purposes, or to help write off any potential taxes they have to pay at the end of the year. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Now, when we talk about why people are not talking about this situation, there's always this conspiratorial element. You know, people mm-hmm. who bring this to light are being conspiratorial. They don't have credibility or they were wronged by the system and they're just crying sour grapes. Why are people not talking about this more? And why is it difficult to have credibility when you do expose this? I honestly have no idea. I've been to conversations about this for the past five years with some of my mentors who've been in the field for 25 years. And everyone is fully aware that this is occurring, but no one is having a conversation about it. Um, and, you know, it goes so far as, uh, you know, there's a there's a producer out in LA uh, named Greg Horvath and he came out with this um, documentary called the business of recovery. And I'm in touch with Greg and and we have conversations about this topic, but even his film was stigmatized um, and he was kind of shunned for a little bit, um, which is very concerning because this is, this is impacting every single one of us has a family member, loved one, someone that's impacted by substance use disorders and, all the other options that are out there are of this sort that we're talking about now. And you can see this for-profit, everything that we talked about in the for-profit sector sort of hemorrhaging in and bleeding into the nonprofit sector. And they sort of don't have any other option but to pay or play to pay the game, right? Or get paid to play the game. Exactly. Um, and so that's where all these characters come in. And, you know, right. that's where we have all these purported thought leaders who exactly. are coming in espousing these uh, clearly counterintuitive notions that are harmful to the patient yet exactly. continue to remain in prominence. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's very curious and, and, you know, conspiracy theorists are going to be talking about, you know, um, the lobbyists and the Congress folks that are involved and who are not involved or whatever the case may be. But um, something that is really important to me to say out loud is that I've been firsthand witness to this. Um, I, I've done my research, I can prove it. Um, and, you know, this is something that I definitely want to talk about for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm just hoping that others will step up and say the same. Oh, thank you so much, Kapil. We are mm-hmm. short of time, but before I let you go, I want you to uh, share some message of wisdom, some words of experience uh, to the patients who may be listening that are at the disenfranchised end of everything that we discussed. What sort of advice would you have for them? Yeah, I know all the information that we just shared is pretty cynical in nature, but I just want you to be mindful of the options that are available to you. Um, I would strongly recommend if you are interested or in need of help for yourself, for someone else, for a family member, loved one, whoever, 
to reach out to a longstanding private practitioner that has been practicing substance use disorder treatment for some time, reach out to them before you jump into calling your insurance or calling any specific facility to admit um, and get their guidance because every single practitioner that has been around for a decade or more in your area has the wherewithal and knowledge with regards to which facilities are practicing, practicing properly and which are not. Um, do not hesitate to practice harm reduction with that private practitioner. Um, and if you need any other insights report, I'm always available. If you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to do the research and let you know what I know. Um, sure, sure, Kapil, give us your email address and your yeah, preferred point of contact. So for sure. My first, uh, it's my first and last name, LPC at gmail.com. So K-A-P as in Paul, I-L as in Larry, N as in Nancy, A-Y-A-R, L-P-C at gmail.com. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Kapil. Yeah. And I'm sure this is not the last time we'll talk. No. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yes. Yeah. Take care. Cheers. Thank you.